Good morning. I hope you are all well. I had a blessed, uh, really, really beautiful weekend. Um, I uh, I didn't have an introduction for the message today. Um, and I sort of put one together, and it, as I got here, it didn't fit. And um, but before I I came to church this morning, I had a hymn in my mind that I thought, oh, I, I hope I get there soon enough. I want to want to grab uh, Brother Don and and just make sure that I can get this hymn in. And uh, and I didn't get here soon enough. Um, but the Lord got here soon enough. The Lord got here, I don't know how many days ago that that hymn was requested. Uh, it wasn't that hymn, by the way, the one that we just sung. But I couldn't think of a better hymn that would introduce the topic that we have this morning. So Romans chapter 8, please. We have our introduction. You've sung it. And we'll read read from verse 18. The Lord says here, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same, in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our body. Let's pray. Father, you always go before us, dear Lord. You know the end from the beginning. You know things, dear Lord, that are not yet done. You understand everything that we go through within our lives. You understand our struggles, our trials, the tribulations, dear Lord, some of which we put ourselves through. But Father, we know, dear Lord, that all things work together for good to them that love you. And to understand, dear Lord, why there are suffering and why we do at times, dear Father, is our, is our study for this morning. And I just pray, dear Lord, that you would open our own hearts, our minds, our souls to just receive the truth of your word to the glory of the Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I got that email from um, from Brother Kevin with respect to Sandy's mum and uh, and her passing away. And I love I love how Christians write about um, the death of loved ones that are saved. He said that she was promoted to glory. Promoted to glory. You can't say that if you're not saved. You can't say that of a loved one that doesn't know the Lord. But I know Sandy's uh, mum knew the Lord. We had the blessing of meeting her, and, uh, and it was a blessing. 
She, um, she was 101, I think. It was about a year or so ago, wasn't it? About a year, maybe two years. I think she was about 100 years of age when we met her. And um, she's in this little room around the back of the house and she's got a, a board in front of her and a whole bunch of jumbled up letters on the board and her trial every single day is to unjumble those letters to make a word. And it's usually a nine-letter word or a, it's a fairly decent-sized word. It's not like cat, you know. And she wanted to have that there because she wanted her mind to stay alert right up until the end. Well, Brother Kevin, you know, brought, her, brought us over to meet her and to say hello. And she, um, yeah, he mentioned that uh, she sort of enjoys being an exhibit. <laughs> and, uh, and she does. And, and she was beautiful to talk to. She was, she was completely with it right up until the end. But... Um, but our brother said that she was promoted to glory. And it is a wonderful blessing. The text that we're looking at uh, this morning is also a blessing. And it's one of those that, uh, that should give us real pause. I've, I've titled the sermon, The Great Expectation. And, uh, and as usual, there's, there's a, there's a four-point outline. And um, the points are progressively shorter. So the longest one will be the first one. And the first one is a knowledge of sufferings. A knowledge of sufferings. He says in verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Here Paul says that he he reckons, he surmises, he has considered all the sufferings and he's come to a complete conclusion that all those sufferings are not worthy. They're simply not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. It's important to note that the sufferings here aren't referring to the sufferings of the unrighteous. These sufferings are not those that are the wages of unrighteousness. Uh, and we can see that as well in, um, in the verse just before it. Have a look at the verse just before. We'll start at verse 16. And it says there, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. What we're going to be looking at, and it's just this first point, is there's four basic spheres of, well, suffering, I suppose. We want to look at how our Lord suffered, that we can then equate that to us. Because the Bible goes on elsewhere and it tells us that, um, that he suffered with us, that he was that he was like us, that he was our high priest, and then our infirmities were his, though without sin. So the same struggles that he had. So there's four basic ones. We have a societal type of suffering, we have personal, we have physical, and we also have a spiritual one. And I want to put to you that our Lord suffered in all of these. So the first one, in societal, we know that he suffered with many false accusations. People in society that knew him falsely accused him. Um, In Mark 14, 55, for many bear false witness, the Bible says. Mockings. We know that during his trial, he went through all these different mockings. They plaited a a crown of thorns and they put it onto his head and, and a reed in his right hand and they bowed their knee before him and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. In Matthew 27, while on the cross, and after he prayed for them, after he prayed for them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
They pass by and revile him. The leaders, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Another said, likewise, and then likewise also the priests mocking him with the scribes and elders, they said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Another said, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Could you imagine? You just prayed for these people. You came to to save them, and they mock you at a time in your life that um, is pretty extreme. They also conspired against his life. We see that in Matthew 26. They assembled together all the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and the people, and they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety. And that they would kill him. We could speak more of the murmurings against him in John chapter 7. Or the subtle arguments of those leaders who would, who would catch him in his words. That we have in John chapter 6. Or the rejection of many of his disciples which he taught. In John chapter 6. Or the frustration with his close disciples and their failure to understand. In Luke 9, remember his, his comments against his own disciples, that they're still without faith. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? What a struggle. So we see that in society, he was basically rejected by many, many people. You know, We have another one saying, well, he's a good man. And the other say, yeah, but he deceiveth the people. So he was a topic of conversation. They were looking for him at the feast, do you remember? And even his brothers mocked him. Even his own brothers, you know. No one would hide himself being the way you are. Go and reveal yourself at the feast. And he says, my time has not yet come. You know, you go for your time is always ready, he says. He doesn't go yet to the feast. Personally, how he suffered personally. We know that our Lord suffered personal hardship and loss. He he suffered the death of a loved one. Remember, he wept for Lazarus. What we see is the shortest verse of the Bible. Jesus wept, and it was for Lazarus. He also wept for Jerusalem, remember? He stood there and he wept, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He suffered the denial of a disciple and a friend. And the betrayal of his disciple Judas, that was also something that he suffered personally. He was grieved that his own city wouldn't hear him. His brothers and sisters didn't believe him. And he had brothers and sisters, brethren. I mean, uh, he did have brothers and sisters. We know the names of all his brothers. Uh, We know that he had at least more than one sister. The Apostle John relates that he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came to his own and his own received him not in John chapter 1. So imagine for a minute that you were rejected by the very people you came to save. Imagine imagine the personal grief when the people that you love, cared and cared for, would rather have a murderer released to them than you. If you were given the option. If you were given that that option. Imagine hearing your own people crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And yet there's a stranger there, 
a stranger that is not one of the people that are of your people, that is trying everything to set you free. Shall I crucify your king, he says, Pontius Pilate? And how do they respond? His own subjects, his own subjects responded, we have no king but Caesar. And they blessed themselves with a curse, saying, let his blood be on us and on our children. What, what grief would this be to you? So you can imagine the personal suffering that our Lord endured just with knowing these things. Physical. We know that our Lord also suffered physically. We know about the cross, and I'm, I'm not going to go into the details of the cross. Suffice to say that the very word that we use to express the greatest physical pain that we can possibly endure, the greatest torment that we can endure is the word excruciate. And it's a compound Latin word. It simply means ex of cruis, the cross, of the cross. A made-up word to describe the sufferings of Christ to its extremity that our Lord suffered. Isn't it a wonder why Isaiah speaks of him saying that he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? We know of his scourging. The Lord himself speaks about it in the third person in Luke chapter 18, saying, And they shall scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. John chapter 19 tells us that then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. What is that? Well, a Jewish scourge was inflicted generally with either a rod or with a rope, with with cords on them. We, We see that picture of our Lord doing exactly the same thing. Remember when he actually made a rope? And he put knots in them and he he actually made a scourge. And he's whipping the people to get them out of the temple because they defiled the temple. How we would pray that this is the scourge that our Lord was to suffer. But it wasn't a Jewish scourge. It was the cruelty of the Roman one that he was to endure. It wasn't knots in a rope. It was bone fragments and metal that was there. And that was used along its length to, 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 um, to whip our Lord by. And again, the scourge, the word scourge is actually a Latin word, and it literally, it literally is in the, in the original, it means to excoriate, as defined as that which would strip off the hide. And we have this prophesied of our Lord. It's a passage that can relate to no other person in Isaiah 52, verse 14. It says this, have a listen. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And this is a picture of the Lord. This is a picture of the Lamb of God. This is the last portion of Isaiah 52. And Isaiah 53, you all know, speaks specifically of the coming of Jesus Christ several hundred years after it was spoken about and written down in the book of Isaiah. And it gives such detail about our Lord, about his sufferings. We know him coming as a suffering servant. The Jews were perplexed. They actually didn't know. They thought, Messiah, Messiah, there must be two. You know, there must be one Messiah and he's, there's two Messiahs. There's one that clearly presents himself as a suffering servant, but there's another one that's going to come in glory. You know? They were looking for two Messiahs coming once. Now, we know that it's one Messiah that's coming twice. In Isaiah 50... He says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair 
I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And this was realised in Mark chapter 15. So he suffered that as well as death and his death on the cross. So that's his physical. So we've spoken about the societal, we've spoken about the personal. So the whole group of people, the personal, related to him alone. We've spoken about the physical. There's a spiritual. You'd be surprised to think that our Lord suffered spiritually. How did he suffer spiritually? The Gospel of Luke, it's recorded for us that our Lord sweated great drops of blood in the garden for what he was to endure. The phenomenon's called hematohydrosis or hematidrosis. It's got two different words. It is a phenomenon because it's so rare that it would occur, but we know and we have record of it also occurring. We have, we've actually got a historical record of Leonardo da Vinci speaking of a young man that actually suffered with exactly the same thing before he went off to fight in, in a war. But we also have record of prisoners on death row sweating blood. Interesting, isn't it? It's something that occurs under extreme torment, extreme mental anguish and torment. So it's very rare. Now, he was to suffer extreme physical torment. We know that. We see that in Scripture. He knew it was to occur. But he also knew that something else was going to occur. Uh, And it was going to occur for the first time in all of eternity. It's never happened before. And it's something that I don't think any of us can fully comprehend. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 22. Remember, the Psalms are located in the middle of the Bible. Unless you've got a really, really fat concordance, which will throw you out a little bit. But Psalm 22, in the middle of your Bible... And at the beginning of this psalm, what we have is his complaint, or a complaint. And it's one that's repeated twice. It's repeated twice in the New Testament. It's found in Matthew 27, verse 46, and also in Mark 15, verse 34. And it's Psalm 22 and verse 1. And if you ever have the time to read the whole psalm, it's worth doing. Because it is, again, a picture, first person, of our Lord on the cross. It's almost his own words. He says there in verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? The very reason Jesus came to to earth, the very reason God became man and was born of a child, the very reason he came was to die. That was his purpose. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to be that perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, that taketh away the sins of the world. Scripture says that he was made sin. He was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of of God in him in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This event on the cross, this event was the crowning achievement of his life. That sounds strange, doesn't it? But it was. It was the crowning achievement of his life. He came to die. This was the pivotal moment in the life of Christ. This was the absolute high point of why he came. You see, without the death of Christ, you and I would still be in our sins. There'd still be no hope of resurrections. Our Lord, our Lord came 
and he suffered, yes, but it's his death that washes away our sins. It's the shedding of his blood that cleanses us, us from all sin. He had to die. And this is the high point, the crowning achievement of his life. As parents, we, we, we look forward to, to seeing our kids grow up. You know, we look forward to seeing how they grow and how they mature and, and the things that they will go through within their life. We watch them from when they're really, really small, you know, and we care for them and we nurture them and we teach them everything that we possibly can. As a, as a parent, you, you want the very best for your child and you want to see them grow and, um, and fulfil all that God has in store for them, you know. And they will, um, they'll go to, perhaps they might go to university, you know. And, and, you know, they've gone through their primary school years, they've gone through their high school years and you've had to deal with all the situations that are involved in that. And then they've got all these years of uni, potentially, depending on how long their course is, right? But then it comes to that pivotal moment in their life where they're going to graduate. They're going to be promoted, you know? So graduation from that point on is a pivotal change in their life. But everything that they've done has prepared them right up until that point. And, we, and we're there, we're present. Camera's ready, you know? We don't want to miss a moment of them graduating, you know. We want to see every, every single moment. But here the father turns away. And the father turns away at the most important time in the ministry of Christ, the pivotal moment of our Lord's time here on earth. He feels forsaken. hard to comprehend you know I mean we we sometimes feel distant from God don't we I mean our sins separate us from the Lord you know when we feel distance from God Jesus has never experienced distance from God all eternity he is at one with the father he's at one with God and at this time he feels so apart from him he believes to be he believes himself to be forsaken of God So on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. On the cross, he was accursed. On the cross, Jesus became sin judged. Our Lord suffered spiritually. He suffered in a spiritual way. When we looked at that text there in verse 17 and it spoke about suffering with him, we also know that Christians suffered with him. They suffered in like manner. They suffered all four of those same things. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. They suffered societally. Apostle Paul tells us that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now if you've ever begun to live a godly life, you would have experienced persecution. And... You know, to my own shame, you know, I've, I've seen people, when I've struggled with sin, and, I, and, and there was a person that I knew that was truly godly, I don't know what it is, but you can just sense it. 
You could be talking to them on the phone and all of a sudden I felt sick. I didn't like them. Why didn't I like them? Well, because they were convicting me of my sin. You see, they were making me feel very uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable being around them. Very easy it would have been for me to persecute them, for me to talk about them, negatively about them, putting them down so I can somehow, in a ridiculous way, lift myself up. Christians do that a lot today. I think Christians have always done that. I think that's just general right across the board. It's not just Christians. I think it's out there in the world. You know, we want to put down those that live godly, those that would like to live a right life. Why? Because they convict us of our own sin. So this is completely natural and understandable. This is part of society and this is what happens. Personally, we've got examples in Scripture of the incarceration of Peter and Paul, specifically for their witness of the gospel, their concern for their brethren, their efforts in ensuring the true doctrines. They've experienced backbiting against them and their fight against heresy and their personal persecution of the leaders of the Jews. We see that. That's the reason why the, Jews, the, uh, the Christian Jews scattered from Jerusalem in the early days. Physically, we're witnesses to the martyrdom of Stephen. We saw that in Scripture. He is the first martyr that we know in the Bible. So this is all just the biblical people that I'm referring to. And keep in mind, I'm only speaking about those in the New Testament here. I haven't touched on David, Solomon, Hannah and Naomi and, and all those others that have, that have struggled in so many like ways. We know the beatings of Paul and Barnabas, the stoning of Paul and being left for dead, the shipwreck of three vessels on which Paul was a passenger. Knowing this, you might have wanted to get off any ship you saw Paul boarding. I don't know, it's probably a good idea. Chances are, you know what I mean? We see James, the death of James by the sword. He was one of the apostles, the brother of John, killed by the sword. In fact, we trust historically that all but the apostle John were actually killed for their faith in a variety of different ways. That doesn't mean that the apostle John didn't suffer persecution. We understand that he was actually, he was actually put in a boiling um, drum of oil. And somehow he miraculously escaped without injury. He was then persecuted and placed on the Isle of Patmos, which we know he read, he wrote uh, the revelation that we understand. Spiritually, we find the wonderful account that Paul provides in Romans 7 about his own struggles. Spiritually, you know, that which I would, I do not, but that which I would not, that do I. There's a battle going on. He speaks about it again in Galatians chapter 5 where he says that the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, that you cannot do that which he would. So he recognises that there is a spiritual element going on and a spiritual battle that every true Christian believer suffers with. We all suffer with this. And we see the changes in the life of Peter. Um, We see how he's changed. Remember, he went from denying him three times. He denied our Lord three times and was broken. The Lord looked at the last denial and the cock crew and he just wept. Incredible account that we find in all four Gospels. It's not often that we see something in all four Gospels, but all four are there. All for, all, all account, every account is, in all, is recorded four times. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. So if you're in Romans, turn to 2 Corinthians. We'll have a look at chapter 11. Oh, 2 Corinthians. Yeah, chapter 11. 
and from verse 23. Paul gives a summary of only his sufferings. And you're going to see all, all four spheres presented here. So the same four that I've been mentioning, if you study this particular passage, you're going to find all four of them here. You're going to find a societal suffering, you're going to find a personal one, a physical one, and, uh, and a spiritual one in there. Verse 23, and he gives a brilliant summary, and my goodness, the things that he's gone through. Have a look, he says, are they ministers of Christ? Now in the context of what he's writing here, please keep in mind, there has been a lot of murmuring against Paul. A lot of murmuring against Paul, trying to deny his authority in matters of faith and practice with regards to what he teaches. Okay, And he's defending himself here. Not that he feels just in doing so, but he feels that he needs to do this for, these, uh, uh, for this church. He says in verse 23, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I more. In labours more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft, Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forever, evermore knoweth that I lie not. What an incredible summary of his life. And this, this, this isn't unusual. Our Lord actually promised about the sufferings that Paul was going to go through. Remember when he spoke to Ananias? Ananias was afraid of this guy. Because this is the same individual that persecuted the church. Do you remember? He was known as Saul. He was standing there when those that actually slain Saul, uh, slain uh, Stephen, took their clothes and they put them at his feet as a young man persecuting the church. He speaks about taking away Christian brethren, dragging them off into prison. And he wasn't, uh, he wasn't, he didn't discriminate. It was men and women and children. It didn't really matter to him. As long as they were of that way, as far as he was concerned, it was perverse in his eyes. He was. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. We know that. And then we see the story of that dramatic experience on the Damascus Road where he met Christ. He met the risen Christ, the glorified Christ. Not just the risen Christ, the glorified Christ. So we see that. And Jesus spoke to Ananias and he says to go and meet with Paul. He's going to come to you. And Ananias said to him, but he's the one that Persecuted? Didn't he persecute all the, all those, all those of, of the way? And Jesus says, "No, go to him. I will show him how many things he must he must suffer for my name's sake." And he did. And we've got that brief summary there. So we can see that Paul has knowledge of sufferings, and he's qualified to say, 
For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The second point. The second point is a witness of glory. A witness of glory. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Whatever it was that the church suffered at the time of Paul, or what the church suffered in the first few centuries under the emperors of Rome, or what the Christian church also suffered under the severe persecutions of the Roman Catholic Church for, well, over a, over a thousand years, or what Christian believers continue to suffer with today as the most persecuted people in the world, none of this is worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in them. None of it's worthy. And this truth is witnessed by the church. Paul's consistent in this doctrine. Turn in your Bibles. You were there at 2 Corinthians. Go back a little bit to, to chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This consistency that Paul has. Also recall his time um, in another, another part, part of his epistles where he's in prison. And he speaks of Christ. And he says, nevertheless, Christ is being preached. doesn't matter what's happening to me, Christ is being preached. And I'm sure Paul would have preached to the guards that were holding him prisoner, speaking about the joy that he has. He's in prison and he speaks to us and sends us a letter basically saying to us, be content in whatever state you find yourself. He's writing this from prison. He's not writing this from a luxurious boat in the Bahamas. Okay? He is in prison when he's writing this. And he says here in in verse 8, he says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto the death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you what's he saying our suffering our struggle what we are going through and how we stand fast in the faith is a token evidence for you of the glory that shall be revealed in us that's what he's saying that's what he's saying (coughs) suffering christians are always a witness to glory to the frustration of their persecutors oftentimes. A suffering Christian can frustrate a persecutor. Can you believe that? We've got an account of that also in history. A persecuted church's willingness to suffer and die witnesses greatly even to their tormentors. So much so that some of their very persecutors themselves were being worn down in their troubling of them. Have a look at this, uh, at this letter. This is part of a letter sent to Emperor Trajan. And it was by, by the governor, Pliny. If you've ever known your history, you've got Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger. This is Pliny the Elder. And he is frustrated by his attempts at trying to, well, I guess, dissuade Christians from confessing their faith. This is what he writes. I am quite wearied with punishing and destroying the Galileans or those of the sect called Christians, according to your orders. 
yet they never cease to profess voluntarily what they are and to offer themselves to death. Wherefore I have laboured by exhortations and threats to discourage them from daring to confess to me that they are of that sect. Yet in spite of all persecution, they continue still to do it. Please be therefore, uh, be pleased therefore to inform me what your highness thinks proper to be done with them. How incredible. Did you get that? He's getting frustrated with putting these people to death. He's getting tired of this, you know. They come to me, yep, I'm, from, I'm Jesus, I'm part of that way. Do you know that I'm going to put you on the rack, I'm going to torture you, I'm probably going to strip the skin off you alive, I'm going to do all these things. Do you understand what you're going to go through for naming the name of Christ and being associated with that person? I am a Christian. I stand by my Lord. The true Christians won't give up their faith. The Lord gives them that strength. The Lord gives them that strength under that persecution. And we see that. There's that evidence of it in history. And it doesn't just stop there. We've got a historical um, evidence of Polycarp. Now, do you understand when it says that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared? What does it tell you about suffering? Is it eternal? No. It's temporary. It is only a short space in time that we go through these struggles and these trials. Yet people live today as if they are going to be constantly in that black hole. They think that because I'm in such a shallow grave at the moment, I might as well dig it deeper and stay there. And so many take their own lives because they can't see a way out. The sufferings are temporary. Polycarp, he also frustrated the magistrate. The proconsul was there. And he'd just been threatened to be torn apart by wild beasts. And he responded to them, bring them on. Imagine that, bring them on. And the magistrate says to him this, and I quote, Seeing you make so light of wild beasts, I will tame you with the more terrible punishment of fire. But Polycarp bravely replied, You threaten me with a fire that is quickly extinguished but are ignorant of the eternal fire of God's judgment reserved for the wicked in the other world. But why do you delay? Order what punishment you please. The soldiers then grabbed Polycarp to nail him to the stake. But Polycarp stopped them. Leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from nails. Incredible. We spoke about this as a witness. The account concluded by saying that Polycarp's death was remembered by everyone. He is even spoken of by the heathen in every place. Our witnesses to glory. We witness to glory. In the Colosseum, as the Christians were gathered together, huddled, singing hymns, knowing that at any moment they were going to be devoured by beasts. They're witnesses to glory. And you know what? They took the joy away from the crowd. The maddening crowd that lusted for their blood, they took away their joy and gave them pause. How can these people do this? Their sufferings were a witness to glory. This last account that I'll give you with respect to this witness. You know, millions of Christians have died a martyr's death. They've suffered. 
And we don't have a lot of written accounts in comparison to how many actually gave themselves to that suffering. But we've got one here from the martyr Ignatius of Antioch. He was, he was known as one of the church, early church fathers, and it was, it was in the late 2nd century. Um, the, the emperor knew of him, um, and they sent soldiers to search for him. And um, we have a number of ten soldiers that searched for him. The soldiers found him, and um, and on the way from home to Rome, which he believed he was going to be um, taken by the animals, um, he wrote letters. Um, we understand he wrote seven letters, but not, it's not really 100% clear whether he wrote them all on that journey. But one of them we know that he wrote on the journey, and it was one that he was doing everything he could to try and dissuade his church from rescuing him. What would you do? Your pastor, your pastor of your church, could you imagine that? He's been taken by soldiers and he's going to face death. Okay, A love for the pastor would do everything and desire everything. You'd be praying for him. You'd be asking that he would be delivered. That would be your call, you know. You want to protect your pastor because he's the one that leads you, you know. And you love him and that's, that's your desire. So you want to do everything you can to break him free. To go and take him and to, and to deliver him from this evil. At the very least, you're going to be praying that he would be delivered. Not, anti, not, uh, not Ignatius. This is what he writes. I'm writing to all the churches and giving instructions to everyone that I die willingly for God. If indeed you do not hinder me, I urge you, do not be an ill-timed kindness to me. Allow me to be food for beasts through whom it is possible to reach God. I am God's wheat, and I am ground by the teeth of beasts, that I may be found pure bread of Christ. And he says here, instead coax the beasts, that they may become a tomb for me, and leave nothing of my body, that I may not be a burden to anyone when I die. As a witness to glory. But this isn't fiction, people. I don't know. I don't know how you're hearing this. I don't know if you're hearing this as just quaint stories. This is not fiction. All right? This is part of history, and this is just one of, well, this is a handful of a multitude of accounts. Most of these accounts, many of these accounts, believe it or not, are actually written down by the persecutors. See, just as in the Second World War, the trial of the Jews by the Nazis was evidenced by the witness of the Nazis. See, the Nazis were the ones that were taking the photos. Do you think they came from the Jews? You think you had one loose Jew around with a happy snap or a Polaroid saying, oh, that's, that's a good one, we'll take a photo? No, not at all. These photos were taken by the Nazis glorifying themselves in the work that they were doing, slaughtering the Jews. came from the persecutors. We have exactly the same in the history. You know Fox's Book of Martyrs? It actually started off as a massive, massive volume. It was huge. Today we've got a lot of these about that thick. You know? I wonder who's been taking away those accounts. But all those accounts that are in there, from the accounts that I read, every single one of those, he was actually quoting from Roman Catholic sources. It didn't, didn't get made up. So this isn't just a fictional story. These are actual accounts. And what are they accounts of? They are accounts of suffering Christians witnessing glory. That's what they are. It's their hope. 
And, the, and guys, the hope that is seen isn't hope. We see that. Now, faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You know, that's what millions of Christians persecuted throughout the centuries have known, and they witness this. You know, a hope unseen by many, but known of those in Christ. The passage that I told you to turn to in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you're still there, just, just crack it open again. But just go down a little bit and see again what Paul, who we've seen his suffering account, refers to with respect to um, their suffering in verse 17. He speaks about it this way. And again, this is a witness, recall. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Amen. Amen, all right. Amen, all right. We've got the third point. This is a really interesting portion of it. It's the largest text, but it's probably going to be the shortest point. Because there's not a great deal more I can say about it. It simply says it in the text. And the third point is called a universal condition. From verse 19, back in, that, um, in, that, in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 19, it says, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Hey, what a strange text. Whole creation. That's, 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 that's everything. That's the entire universe. That's the earth. That's everything. Groans and travails in pain together until now. Some of us have done some really nice travelling. We've done some travelling in different parts of Australia and we've seen some beautiful, beautiful scenery. You know, we, we see all, the, all, this, all these natural wonders. We, we went to the central Australia and we saw these incredible formations that are there. Um, you go onto the coast of Australia and you see an- another incredible amount of formations and it's beautiful and you, we go to the rivers and it's so lovely to be there and... And we see the mountains and, uh, and all that sort of thing, and it's glorious, you know. It's wonderful to see. Some of us are, uh, are armchair travellers, and we've watched so much around the world. You look at fantastic scenery, these incredible mountaintops and these just incredible scenery. We, we, um, we, when we were in central Australia, we were in awe with, with some of the... The, the sunsets, I don't know why, but Central Australia seems to have the best sunsets. Maybe it was just because we're on holiday and in buzz mode, I don't know. But it was beautiful, you know. Um, and in further up north in, in, in Australia, they have incredible thunderstorms. And we all love watching a thunderstorm. I don't know about you, but my kids used to flock to the window and watch the lightning, you know. And I'd be there with a video camera. Yep, any minute now. <laughs> Any minute now, 
that's too long, crack, you know, straight away after I turn it off. Always happens. We love the lightning. We love the thunder. We, oh, well, not all of us. Maybe not all of us. Sorry. You don't like it in the eye. No. Just sitting there. No. No. Uh, we got a dog that doesn't like the thunder either. Comes running into the house. And um, the other day, yeah, we actually found him in our cupboard. And, and not just in the cupboard, tucked away under a bookshelf. Down the bottom. Oh, I couldn't believe what she was doing there. But we opened it up and there she was, frightened over the lightning and the, th- and the thunder. But there's people that love it. They chase storms. They chase tornadoes. Um, but there's people that do nothing other than travel around Australia. We call them grey nomads. They do exist. Brother Kest has one, temporarily living with him when he's not <laughs> travelling all over Australia. So they're no- they love the scenery. They love the natural wonders. But there's nothing about what we see today that is what God referred to as very good. Nothing. We didn't inherit a world that God refers to as very good. We don't exactly know what the earth looked like. All we are witnesses of is a post-flood world. At the very least, it's post-flood. But there's something else here that the text is referring to. It's also a post-fall world. So the world that God spoke about in day six was very good. The fall happened afterwards. And the Bible here tells us that all creation groans and travails. It's an incredible thought. Incredible thought. The text here tells us that the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth For the manifestation of the sons of God. Somehow creation itself is waiting and awaiting the realisation and culmination of the children of God to his glory. What the creation has to do with it, I I don't understand. That's just what the text says. Somehow the entire creation knows the glory of that which is to come and awaits with anticipation. Why? Why? Answer is given to us in verse 21. It says, Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's incredible. Brethren, something else occurred when mankind fell. When, when man rebelled against God, we have what is known as the fall. But something else happened. Something else that resulted in all of creation being in the bondage of corruption, to which one day will be delivered, and it will be joined into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Oh, it's a hard one to work out. I can't take away from the text, okay? So it goes on and it tells us, we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Brethren, it's not only we who suffer. It's not only we that travail. It's not only we that groans. But the Bible tells us that all of creation does likewise. It awaits. It awaits the glorious liberty of the children of God after the manifestation of the sons of God. That's you and I. If you are born again, if you're a Christian, you are what the Bible refers to as a son of God. In the New Testament, the word, the term, and the phrase sons of God is almost exclusive of Christians. Only one time it actually refers to angels. 
In the Old Testament, it's the other way around. It's almost exclusively referred to as angels, only one time. It's speaking about a human being. The sons of God. The fallen condition is a universal condition. Fourth and last point. A glorious redemption. Read from verse 22, so we'll just take it a text, a text higher than where we were at. Just to get the, uh, the context. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. How incredibly this explains why we who are Christians, uh, who are children of God, groan the way we do. Um, this isn't referring to you know whinging and complaining. It's not the groaning that the text is talking about here. Okay, that's something else. It refers to that deep inner groan, that groan within ourselves. It says, and it's a groan that yearns for something, and we don't really understand or know what that something is. But we know that it's not yet received. We know that this groaning for something is not yet received. You know, we, we rejoice that we're born again. You know, we have this wonderful joy in knowing the Father. And, and, and if you spend a lot of time in prayer with the Lord, I, that is a joy that just continues to well up within you. You know, guys, if you don't pray, you are missing the most wonderful, wonderful time of your life. It is the most blessed time of my life is when I'm spending the time with the Lord. I don't want to get up. I don't want to start my day. I don't want to go and do the day. I just want to stay there with the Lord. It's just, can I stay here, Lord? Just, you know, just, I just want to stay here. Because you know, this is just, I feel home. You know? This is where I feel home. So we rejoice in this, and we rejoice in the fact that we have a wonderful hope. We know that when we die, we're going to be with the Lord forever. We know that we're going to be in heaven. We know that eternity in heaven is our home. And heaven is not heaven without the Lord. So we know that we're going to be with the Lord. You know, and it's a wonderful joy and it gives us joy. But within our spirit, we yet yearn for something more. There's something more. We yearn and we groan. And the text says, waiting for the adoption. To wit, the redemption of our body. That's what we yearn for. The redemption of our body. Guys, something else has to happen to you. Something else has to happen. And it will be that glorious manifestation, that change that will become us. It is that which I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What it is, we do not truly know. Uh, but in some way we do. The text goes on there and it says that God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, even the deep things of God. With respect to our bodies, um, can I give you a hint of what our bodies are going to look like? Just, just, just a hint? Could I do that? Okay, if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because the answer's sort of given us, not in pictures, but it, it's, it's given us what we shall be like. Chapter 15, verse 35. We'll read several verses here. 
Paul answers the question that is being asked. He asks and answers as is his usual custom. Verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says, But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? He answers, Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat, or of some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Friends, as the grain differs from the plant that stems from it, so too does this body differ from the glorified body that we shall all receive as the manifestation of the sons of God. Can't even compare it. You know what a seed looks like, don't you? You know what a seed looks like? There's different sized seeds. Some of them are really small, some are a little bit big, but they're all pretty small. How different does a seed that will create an oak tree look from an oak tree? Is it different? That's the comparison here. That's the comparison with those bodies that we have now compared to that glorified body that we shall receive in eternity. That's the comparison. Wow. You know, wow, that's a big difference. I don't know, that's a big difference. To me, that's a big difference. And I'll be really happy, you know. And many more will be happy. But it says here, it's not only us. It's not only us, but all creation will be delivered from this body of corruption, this bondage of corruption, all creation. We can't even begin to comprehend it. Let me close with this. Um, in 1982, Francis Schaeffer wrote a, wrote a, wrote a book. Uh, Francis Schaeffer is a great theologian. He's, a, he's got an incredible mind. And he wrote many, many books. And he wrote a book called How Should We Then Live? How Should We Then Live? Um, it's a book that seeks to answer that question. It, it's really strange because you don't usually title a book by a question. Okay? But the book seeks to answer the question, How Shall We Then Live? Um, so the author decides to answer that question, but not according to the Bible, uh, but according to how history has played itself out. Okay? In the author's note, he makes, he makes this comment. He says, This study is made in the hope that light may be shed upon the major characteristics of our age, and that solutions may be found to the myriad of problems which face us as we look toward the end of the 20th century. It's safe to say that no one has found that solution. You think? 
It's safe to say no one's found that solution. And outside what the Bible teaches, it's highly unlikely that anyone ever will. That's one of the points that I wanted to leave you with this morning. How should we then live? Knowing that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us, how should we then live? There has to be some sort of a change in our perception of things. There has to be a different thing that now motivates us. There has to be something else that we're going to major on and something else we're going to minor on. We need to make sure that we don't major on minors, but major on majors. Make the big things the big things, but don't make a big deal out of small things. It's silly. And in light of that glory that's going to be revealed in us, why would you? When we compare our sufferings to those sufferings of the Christians already noted, how does it compare? The apostles spoke of their own sufferings. How do we compare with that in the first world? When we compare our trial, we as Christians are to go through in this life for the sake of Christ, of the glory that shall be revealed in us, do we have some more perspective? Romans 8.28 tells us, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Tell you a small, small short story. I was saved, and for 10 years while I was a Christian, I suffered with depression. It was while I was a Christian. I know I've mentioned that I suffered with it before, but I'm not sure if, the, if it was in perspective. I suffered with depression while I was a Christian. <laughs> so much for all that joy. You know why? It's because even though I was a Christian, I wasn't falling in love with God. I was still holding myself to this world which offers me nothing. As we know ourselves to be Christ's, live for Christ and your joy will be full. You know, depressing yourselves with what you think will give you satisfaction uh, is not the way to go. Everything here will pass away. So, brethren, when it comes to one another, love each other. When it comes to forgiveness, forgive each other. When it comes to riches... Don't seek for it. Don't seek for it. Why would you? There's a glory to behold. You know? Why would you seek after those riches? It's all going to pass away. How should you then live knowing about these sufferings that are going to be turned to glory? Now let me further encourage you as the people of God and the workers of Christ with this last passage in Scripture. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and it's verse 6. Just listen. Just listen to what he says here. He says, We then as workers together with him beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succoured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no offence in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labours, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armour of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honour and dishonour, 
by evil report and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet well known, as, dis- as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. How should we then live? Well, live for that treasure in heaven and share to others about this glorious expectation that you have, that they too may have hope and live for now. Live for glory and rejoice in the sufferings that you go through because it brings patience and patience, when that's filled, it brings hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for the word of God. How beautiful it is and the hope that it gives us and the joy that we can have through it. Father, I pray, dear Lord, of those that have listened to this discourse, dear Father, I pray, dear Father, that you would fill their hearts with a knowledge of heaven and a desire for the things everlasting. But I pray, dear Lord, for those that don't yet know you, that they may come to the knowledge of who you are, that they too may groan within themselves, desiring the glorious manifestation of the sons of God that they would groan, that they would suffer the way we suffer for Christ. And I pray, dear Lord, that your work would be a work, a pure work within our lives. Bless us, dear Lord, this day. Let our conversation be holy and unblemished, dear Father, trusting in Christ and rejoicing in the salvation that we have. And let us rejoice, dear Lord, evermore to the world around us. Let us be witnesses to that glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.